for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can be seated. Um, how many people do you think are in here? Let's, let's say at least 10. That's right. That I, I, my hope is that we would have at least 10, uh, at least 10 uh, tribe leaders applications. You know, we, uh, in fact, you know, I, I've really had this sense in the spirit that uh, what God is doing here has got to be bigger than what God is doing here. You understand what I mean? It's like what God says and does among this company community of, of saints has got to be it's got to be bigger than, than, than us. It can't be contained in this building or in the next, the slightly bigger building we're moving into, right? Uh, it's it's got to be something that it is able to be passed from one generation to another. I think that's my first priority. But it's also got to be something that can, can transcend just our church services, right? It's, it's got to be something that can change the way that we approach the drive-through window. It's got to be something that can change the way we approach our, our, our work or our day-to-day responsibilities all throughout the week and the month as we're living our lives outside of this building. Uh, we've got to do so with a different sort of strategy. I've always felt like as a pastor, I'm a little bit like the trainer in the corner of a boxing ring. It's like you go in there and, you know, get your brains beat out all, all week long and then, you know, and then I sit you down in the corner on Sunday mornings and I rub your shoulders and say, come on, get out there and, you know, give them heck, kid, because Mickey loves you, you know? You can, <laughs> you can do this, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, my, my hope, though, is that we would, we would receive divine downloads of, of strategy and identity, anointing and ability on Sundays as, as, or Wednesdays as we gather together and that what God does here would ultimately become much bigger than what God is doing here, right? That it wouldn't be able to be con- confined to one geographic location or to one brief moment in time, but it would be something that transcends all of that, that reaches both outside geographically, outside of this location, but also temporally that it would reach outside of this this generation, right? That it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop at this location and it wouldn't stop in this generation, but that what God is doing here would reach across time and across space to bring transformation, instruction, strategy, revelation, and impartation. And, uh, and I say that, I say that to say this, if that's going to happen, if there is any hope of us being able to accomplish that vision, then it's got to be more than me. The, the message, the heart has got to be more than me. It's got to be more than Pastor Ian or Pastor Zach or, or Mandy or Pastor Nate. It, it's got to be bigger than uh, the, the people that are on staff at this church. This has to become a culture. And we cannot, we cannot allow the culture that we are building here at the Altar Fellowship to become one of performance. If, if the way you walk into this room is I'm going to sit in a pew while the pastors and preachers and musicians entertain me or engage me or instruct me, we've already failed. And I was just listening, I was just listening actually to a, an, an anthropologist talk about the development of church culture over time the other day. One of the things he was saying about the way our culture has changed in the last 60 years, 60 or 70 years, um, that is unique is that uh, really, and I think at an accelerating pace over the last 20 years as things like social media and the internet have become more prevalent, that, that institutions that used to be uh, formative have become performative. And it's like people, people used to serve in uh in schools or in universities, or they would enroll in the university for the sake of uh, learning a trade or learning a skill that that would that they wanted to be formed into something that they were not already. But but now they sort of show up to the university thinking they've got it all figured out already, and they've just got to kind of check this box 
so that they can use the platform that the university is going to give them, right? It's been a, a shift in the way that we approach things. And the same is true in, in church. In generations past, people would come to church thinking, there's some work that needs to be done in my life. I need to be formed. And they would show up to church to be formed. And now people show up to church and their posture, and I'm sure it's nobody in this room, but their posture in other churches is that, you know, they've got it all figured out and the pastor really needs what they have. You know, they're so gifted and anointed. And, um, and I'm going to go to this church because I need, I need to get a platform for my gift. And uh, we've got we've to resist the urge to... We've got to resist the urge to exchange God's plan for formation for performance. God's desire is to develop us, all of us, starting with me. You should know that every word I bring here on a Sunday or a Wednesday is something that I've been in the furnace with that word all week, right? That word has been burning me and shaping me and reforming me uh, all throughout the week as I've been praying into it and meditating on it. These are these are truths that they transform me first. And if it, if it hasn't transformed me, it's not going to have the ability to transform you either. And so I'm constantly wrestling with and contending with God's word for this church. But I need you to hear this. If it's going to be more than just me, or if it's going to be more than just my staff, you're going to have to submit to God's call on your life to leadership. You're gonna to have to surrender to this thing. It, I, I understand that it's comfortable being a, a face in a crowd. I understand that it's comfortable hiding in the back corner, showing up 15 minutes after worship ends and leaving as soon as, or 15 minutes after worship starts and leaving as soon as service is dismissed. I, I, I get it. I get that it's comfortable being anonymous. But where we are going None of us are going to be able to remain anonymous. If we do this thing right, none of us are going to be able to, to be just a face in a crowd. And so when Miss Mandy comes up here and shares about today's your last day to sign up to be a, a leader of a tribe, if for me what would be successful is if every single person who has a home, even if it's a small one, even if you rent it, or even, even if you don't have a home, even if you think, you know what, I'm just... I'm staying on a futon in somebody's basement, but I want to lead a tribe because I want to give back to this community that is giving to me. Uh, and you say, we'll just meet at a restaurant one day a week. We'll go out to a park one day a week. We'll go hang out in the mall one day a week. We'll ask somebody else if we can meet in their house. We'll find a place. Uh, that, that to me would be the ultimate measure of success. Would be if, if we as a community of people were all eager to step into God's plan for leadership for our life. I would love to have to turn down 80 applications because everyone in this church is so eager to, to host and to love and to demonstrate the hospitality of God's heart through leading a tribe, a small group. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be a gifted speaker. You, you don't have to preach sermons every, every week or anything like that. Um, what you need to be is willing, right? It's been said often that um, God doesn't, call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And, uh, and I want you to hear this clearly. You are all called. You are all called to lead. You are all called to invest into other people just as the, the Father has invested into you. To demonstrate to them kindness and goodness and charity and hospitality. To accept and include them in your faith journey is a sacred thing. It's an act of worship, and it's, it is, I, th I think, a, a beautiful demonstration of submission to the, uh, the inevitable call of God on your life. You've got to get out of the shadows. You've got to get off of the fringes of the church. Every one of us have to recognize that where God is calling us, he's going to make us a prophetic sign and a wonder to a generation that is yet to come. A generation of kids right next door in that building that are looking at you and wondering what does it look like to be a man or a woman of God and they're, and they're learning. And so uh, my encouragement to you is this, today is the last day to sign up for, um, to, or to turn in your application to be tribe leaders. And my hope is that that would be one of the most sought after positions in this church, that every single person in this church would think, God, I, I just wanna open my home, I wanna open my life 
to these people to make meaningful connections and to invest in them the way that, that so many have invested into me. Amen? So if you're going to do it, you got to do it by the end of the day today. How do they do that? Man, do they go on the website? Just thealtar.org forward slash tribes. Easy. You can remember that. Okay. You feeling good? So I, I've been, I had these ideas, several ideas about stuff I was going to preach on. I got this dream about preaching about a rebellion and uh, the story of Korah and his interactions with Moses, but we are just not there yet. It's going to be, it's going to be fun when we get there, but uh, I don't think today's the day. Now, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go today to Matthew chapter 14, and uh, we're going to talk about what I'm calling the, uh, the paradox of leadership, and then we'll just see where we go from there, okay? Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to start in verse 22. Now, to give you a little bit of context, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 uh, people, they follow him out into the wilderness, and, um, and he, he feeds them all miraculously, supernaturally. In, in verse, uh, uh, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 14, it says, So they all ate, and they were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children, so... 5,000 men, not counting all the women and children that were there. Arguably 10, 15, 20,000 people gathered and they were all able to eat so much that they had their fill. Now, I want to, I want to give you, I, I'm just giving you this to, to give you a little bit of context. The story I'm going to focus on is it starts in verse 22. It says this, I'm, I'm just going to read the next few verses and, and give you some uh, kind of a, a brief overview of the entire story. And then we'll go back and pull some things out. It says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were, uh, and then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So I want to go back to the beginning, and, and I want to provide for you a little bit of uh, social context for what it is that we are reading here. So Jesus, he's... He's in ministry. He's highly sought after. People want to be near him. They want to hear what he's going to say next. They want to see what he's going to do next. And so multitudes of people are following him. 5,000 men brought their families out into the wilderness to, to hang on every word that he said, just to be close to him. And I, I love that this is the, the revelation. 5,000 men would bring their families out into the wilderness to hear Jesus teach without thinking what they're going to eat for their next meal. Without stopping to think, oh, well, we should pack a, a bag, you know, let's bring a sack lunch. Let's, let's, uh, let's only stay out there for an hour or two, and then we got to get back in time to get the kids dinner, right? If you are a parent, you know, you don't go anywhere without thinking, you know, my kids are going to get hangry at the drop of a hat. And so I've got to make sure we've got, we, we've come prepared, Right. And, and I think this paints such a glorious picture. This paints for me such a glorious picture of what it looks like when Jesus is really working. I think we have in the modern church gone to such great lengths to make everything comfortable and convenient to people. And I think we have done so to our, to our own dis, disservice. I think that in, in many ways it has been counterproductive to uh, the, the revelation of the, the, the sacredness of what it is we're actually doing that there's never been any risk or cost involved for us. You know, you come into a, 
a nice parking lot where you've got a great spot up front that says first time guests, you know, and you walk in and and there's like happy, smiling people at the front door telling you how great you are and being so nice to you. And there's free coffee and there's, and there's donuts. And you come in and there's a nice, comfortable padded seat and there's air conditioning that works. I'm just dreaming here, like how sweet it would be. <laughs> there's a nice, comfortable seat and there's, <laughs> and there's, there's air conditioning. And soon, guys, I'm telling you, we're going to get it. But uh, not, for, not for y'all. This is just for me. So I, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and then you, you listen to some great music and you hear, uh, you know, a, a, a message from a pastor who's, you know, a, a, a little bit half, he's like half, it's like half TED talk, half stand up routine, you know, and, uh, and then they get you out by 1145 so you can get to lunch at noon, right? It's like, it's a, it's a formula that's, that's built around our comfort zone. And I, I can't help but think how unbelievable it would be to be a part of the kind of movement that people think, who cares about my next meal? I can't miss what God is doing. Right? We'll figure it out. Who knows? Who, who can, I'm not, I cannot miss this. Whatever it costs me, I cannot miss this. Jesus is on the move. The teacher has come. The miracles are happening. God in the flesh is walking through my city and I cannot miss it, no matter how inconvenient it is no matter how costly it may be. And so this is the, the moment, is that there's this sort of collective awakening to the majesty of Jesus that's happening. Multitudes of people are following him. 5,000 men bring their wives and their children out into the wilderness. And Jesus, he miraculously, he meets the need. And then it says this, it says in verse 22 of Matthew 14, it says, immediately, everybody say immediately. immediately. Everybody eats. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So this is what happens. Thousands are following Jesus, hanging on his every word. They've just seen him do a significant miracle. They've eaten this divine meal. And Jesus doesn't say, all right, well, let me get your phone number and your email address so that we can put you in our, our mailing list. He doesn't say, hey, make sure you download the app, scan here. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, look, look, something amazing's happening. There are 5,000 men who brought their families out here into the wilderness. You know what we should do? Let's build a building. That's what a, that's what a, a leader with any sense would have done, right? Let's build them a building so we can house these 5,000 people. Let's get some staff on the payroll so that we can lead these 5,000 men and their families. Let's, uh, let's start getting food brought out you know, every day and we'll just, we'll just set up a monument to, to ourselves right here. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He tells his disciples to get in a boat and leave. And then he turns to these 5,000 men and their families and he sends them away. It says, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone there. I want you to understand the stark contrast between the way the story of Jesus feeding these, these 5,000 ends and the way that the story of Jesus walking on the water begins. One story ends with Jesus at the center of this massive movement. And the next story begins with Jesus all alone with his father on a mountain. And I think... One of the critical mistakes, as I've been meditating this week, one of the critical mistakes that I have, have wrestled with in leadership, and I'm sure even many of us in this room have as well, is thinking that, that, that crowds are evidence of God's involvement. That if it's big, it must be God. God is big, but not everything big is God. It's like, I mean, I, I, you, you'd be shocked at, at the number of times that I've talked with ministers who they tell me about all the people that came to their event and people were crying and falling on the ground. And, oh man, it was so powerful, right? It's like they did that for the Beatles. Elvis did that to people. I saw, I saw people running through the streets 
trying to touch a car the Backstreet Boys were in, right? It's not, just because it's big doesn't mean it's God, right? And so, in Jesus, he knows this, right? He says, the son does nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing first. The posture of his heart is to walk in obedience and submission and in, in harmony and fellowship with the father, not to build a huge ministry, but to, to walk in lockstep with the father and, and with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, he sends the 5,000 away, their families. He sends them back to their homes, back to their cities, back to their lives. And he puts his disciples on a boat and he tells them to, um, to go to the other side. And now this was supposed to be my uh, my big point at the end, but I, I, who knows where we're going to go today. It's, it's an adventure. So I, I, want, I want to talk about the paradox of leadership because I think this is a beautiful picture. Jesus is leading his disciples. And Jesus and his disciples are leading these 5,000 men. These 5,000 men are leading their wives and their children, and Jesus sends them all away. This is, in every way, counterintuitive to the way we understand leadership in our modern society. The paradox of kingdom leadership is that you have to turn your back on the people you are leading. I want you to hear this. The paradox of kingdom leadership is that to lead effectively, you have to turn your back on the people you are leading. You may love and care for them deeply, but what they need from you most is not your undivided attention. What they need from you most is not your undivided attention. What they need is a vision, a plan, and a path to walk. And they don't need you to merely tell them where the path is or how they should walk it. They need you to show them how it's done. So skillful leadership in the kingdom then is not predicated primarily on the care you give to people, but rather the path you walk and continue to walk in exemplary fashion. So skillful, skillful leadership in the kingdom then is not predicated primarily on the care you give to people. Now this is, we sang that Keith Green song, they'll know we are Christians by our love, right? We've been taught, all of us, we've been taught our whole life that we gotta love people so that they'll get saved. And uh, I, th I think we should love people because it's the right thing to do. Uh, whether they whether they get saved or, or not, right? In fact, in fact, that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus was teaching to his disciples. The world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another, not by the way you love them. <laughs> here's here's the thing. For years, people called me an evangelist, and. I don't know that my heart posture has changed. I still want to see the world one with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I actually believe, I actually believe that what we're doing right now, living, walking in community with each other, linking arms and journeying through life together, I think that that is the most compelling evidence for the legitimacy of the gospel I could ever give to, to an unbelieving world. To show them people of different backgrounds, people of different generations, people from different styles, people that have gray hair, people that have pink hair, coming together, coming together under the banner of, of, of the blood of, of the lamb, right? There's, there's no other thing that should join this company of people together. From all over the country, all over the world, people of different colors, different economic statuses, people that we're raised speaking different languages. That we're able to come together with one thing in common, and that thing is the lordship of Jesus. God is glorified in that. I want to see, I want to see people not just hear the, the, the gospel of the kingdom. I want them to see the gospel of the kingdom in action. And so for us, my strategy in reaching Johnson City with the gospel is not to chase Johnson City around with the gospel. I'm not banging on doors. Handing out Bible tracts everywhere that I go. What I'm, and that's because I, I'm convinced that skillful leadership in the kingdom is not predicated primarily on how we care, uh, on the care that we give to people, but rather the path we walk and continue to walk in an exemplary fashion. There are people in this building today that came into this church, unbelievers, far from God, didn't know anything about what it meant 
to be, to be born again or to be brought into the kingdom or to be a part of the family of God. And they stayed, not because they agreed with our theology. They didn't understand it at all. They stayed because their heart started to sing inside of their chest and say, this is, this is what I was made for. And so if, if we will continue to walk the path, if we will continue to walk the path in an exemplary fashion, we will find that we, we are in, in, by way of obedience alone, we are blazing a trail for all of those who would come after us. And now this is what Jesus understood so well that he, he taught and he spent a lot of time teaching, but even more than the time he spent teaching, he spent demonstrating. We, we see him walking the path and inviting others to walk the path behind him. And so he turns his back on the crowd. And even, even in his pursuit of solitude, he is leading. He's teaching Matthew, who wrote this book, how to steward leadership. He's teaching all of us who in our generation and generations previous and generations yet to come, who will read the account of Matthew the disciple. Jesus is teaching us through this gospel account of his life what it looks like to steward a relationship with God in the midst of the chaos of leadership. When there are thousands of people that want to be around you, sometimes the most effective thing you can do is to turn your back on the crowd. Sometimes the clearest message you can preach is the message you don't preach at all. Sometimes, I've, I've said this before, if we're going to be effective leaders in our families, in our community, we've got to have a vision bigger than simply being followed. And in the social media generation where you've got people who are just famous for being famous, Right? It's, they don't have a skill or ability. There's not a gift or a talent that got them there. They just, you know, did dances on TikTok and 10 million followers later, they're just famous for being famous. And, uh, and, they're, uh, uh, and, and in, this, in this generation, it's, it's uh, counter-cultural. It's counterintuitive for us to, to recognize that, that if we don't have direction, we have no business leading. But if we don't have direction, we need to find somebody who does and join ourselves to them, get as close to them as we possibly can because we've got to have a vision bigger than simply being followed. And so many of us that feel like God has called us into leadership, we, uh, we spend our lives trying to acquire a following and we call that leadership. That's not leadership. You're not going anywhere. You're just walking in circles. They're following you and you're following them. You're not going anywhere. We've got to, we, we as kingdom people, this is why I have devoted so much time to teaching about the kingdom as a culture, because that's the vision. That's the dream of, of heaven. This is what we are building toward is, is the day that all of heaven can declare that, uh, that the lamb has, has overcome. That when, when all of heaven can declare that, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. When Nebuchadnezzar's dream becomes a reality when the stone that was unhewn by human hands topples the nations of, of this world and consumes them and the planet itself. That's the dream that we are after. The reason that I talk about this stuff and I continue to talk about this stuff is because this is the vision that is bigger than simply being followed. This is the vision that is bigger than simply amassing a following or a crowd getting as many eyeballs on us as, as possible, as many views, as many clicks, as many downloads as we possibly can. We've got to have something bigger than that, man. We've got to have something bigger than that. And, uh, and what we see in, in the life of Jesus is that he's got a vision bigger than simply being followed. As he sends his disciples away on the boat and he sends the 5,000 and their families away and he goes into to prayer in verse 23 of Matthew 14. It says, now when evening came, he was alone there. He had gone up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. But 
the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, I want you to see the contrast here. Um, Jesus is alone in solitude, in, uh, in stillness on the mountain in prayer. His disciples are fighting for their lives out on a boat in the middle of the sea. And, um, and, and we'll, we'll get there. I'm, I'm starting to get ahead of myself. So th- this, is the, this is the situation. The, the boat is now in the middle of the sea being tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary. What was it that was contrary? The wind. It wasn't the waves. It wasn't the boat. Okay. The wind itself was contrary. Now, that word contrary means opposed as an adversary. It means against them. The wind was against them. It's in their face. If you've ever tried to, if you've ever been on a a sailboat, you know that it's uh, not possible. You have to do what's called tacking and go back and forth. You can't sail directly into the wind. And so these guys are struggling uh, because not only is there a storm, but the wind is coming right at them. And so... Uh, This wind is opposed to them as an adversary. But it says this. It says, now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Can I tell you, friend, if it feels like you're in a storm, help is on the way. You should know this, but I think it bears repeating. If you feel like you're in the middle of a storm, help is on the way. It may feel like he's miles away up on his holy mountain while you're down in the ocean getting your butt kicked. But I'm telling you, if you will hang on, help is on the way. This is the the thing that astonishes me about people that do things like divorce their partners. It's like, if you just don't quit, help is coming. If you will just hang on and say, "It, it may feel like I'm about to lose everything. If you will hang on, you will make it. I'm telling you. If you will stay, he will help you. He will rescue you. He will save you. And so I I just, I feel like this always bears a a moment of our time that we all need to be remembered that when it seems impossible, when it seems difficult, when it's painful, when it's uncertain, when it's overwhelming, when it's too strong for us, the wind against us feels like it's stronger than the wind inside of us. I'm telling you, if you will stay the course, you will find that help is coming. Okay? Okay. Tossed, says, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I love that these guys who are Jews and Jews don't even believe in ghosts that they're, it would be easier for them to think this is a ghost. We don't believe in ghosts, but there it is. Then to think that that maybe God had answered their prayers. Do you ever find that you pray for something and then that exact thing shows up? Can you, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that these guys were on this boat. In fact, it happened in Matthew chapter eight. They were on a boat in a storm and Jesus calmed that storm. And so now in Matthew chapter 14, these guys are on a boat in a storm again. And I'll bet the only conversation is, why didn't Jesus come with us? (laughs) He would have been able to handle this. I wish he was here with us right now. They look over their shoulder and he's here with them right now. And they go, ah, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. What? That's the conclusion. I wonder, I wonder, (laughs) I wonder how many times. Um, I wonder how many times exactly what we've been praying for shows up and we're too scared to recognize it. Have you ever been, uh, for those of you that have, have had or, or have uh, babies, one of the most obnoxious things, one of the most frustrating things that babies do is they cry because they're hungry and they're so busy crying that they won't eat the food you're trying to give them. You ever, you know, it's like, I'm trying, I know you're hungry. I'm trying to feed you right now. If you would just chill out It's not a ghost. I'm trying to give you the help you're asking for. Watching my babies, when they were babies, do this, 
I thought, I understand Christians better. (laughs) Because so many of us spend years of our lives screaming so hard for a breakthrough that God is actively trying to give us. Peter recognizes that the thing they were afraid of turned out to be the thing that they needed most. I wonder if any of you can relate that the times in your life that the thing you were afraid of, the thing you resisted, the thing that you wanted to run and hide from was actually the thing that you needed most. It was God's gift to your situation. He was gonna bring breakthrough through this thing and it was the thing that scared scared the daylights out of you. This, this is, I think, a, a revelation that we all have to be willing to confront that, that sometimes God's, uh, the, the mechanism of God's breakthrough in your life is not gonna be sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes it's not going to be the easy way. Sometimes you're going to have to face that thing that scares you the most. You're going to have to look over the side of your boat and recognize that I don't like it. I don't understand it. It's not comfortable for me. There's no grid for this. There's someone walking on the water toward our boat. I don't know what to make of this. And instead of running away from the unfamiliar, sometimes you have to lean into it. Sometimes you have to go grab a hold of it. Amen. Peter recognized something that so many of us ignore. He recognized that the thing he was afraid of turned out to be the thing that he needed the very most. And so he calls out to him. After Jesus says, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. You know, Peter, um, I like Peter. He's uh, adventurous. He's aggressive, you know. He wants to go get what he's got in his heart. But can I tell you, there are some things about Peter I just don't understand. One of them is, if I was in a boat in the middle of a storm, I don't care who's on the water, I'm staying in that boat. I would have said something like, Lord, if it is you, come on over, get in, you know. Come over here to where we are at. (laughs) That seems like it would make more sense to me. Uh, But I think Peter had a revelation that we need to grab a hold of regarding the presence of God. Peter understood that it wasn't the boat that kept him safe. It was the king. Now, how many of us build our sense of security on our career? We build our sense of security on the house that we live in or our bank account. We build our sense of security on our own skills and abilities. We're gifted in a particular area. We can generate income for ourselves and our families. We build our sense of security on who's in office or what state we live in, or what tax rate we're we're at. We build our sense of security on uh, any number of things. And Peter knew, I think, better than any of us, that when you are, that the general rule of thumb is that when it's the middle of the night and you're in a storm on the ocean, the only thing keeping you safe is that boat. But Peter looked over the edge and he saw his Savior he saw Jesus and he said, There's, I've found a place safer than this boat and that is the presence of the king. Friends, I, I want you to understand it's not your education that will save you when the storm comes. It's, it's his presence. It's not your career. It's not your savings account. It's not your Dave Ramsey $1,000 emergency fund that's gonna save you. Hmm? It is his presence. It's his presence. Peter understood that, listen, the boat might be safe, but there's a safer place if I could just get close to him. And this has to become our instinct. We've got to, we, we can't be church people. We've got to be presence people. This, listen, this boat will not save us, right? His presence will. 
His presence will. And we've got to be people that are willing to say, wherever your presence is, Jesus, that's where I, I have to be. If it means that I have to do the impossible to get there, then that's what I'll do, but I can't be without you. I have to be with you where you are. That's the, the heart cry of Jesus in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I pray that they would be with me where I am. His invitation isn't, isn't that we would allow him permission to follow us around, but that we would go where he goes, that we would do what he does, that if he's doing the impossible, that we would be so eager to be with him that we would jump out of the possible just to go be with him. We'd jump out of the familiar just to go be with him. We'd be eager to jump out of our own abilities, our own skills, our own resources, our own experience, to say, all I need, all I want, my whole life is, is built around one thing, and that is the presence of the living God. I've got to be close. I've got to be close. I've got to get closer. And so Peter leaves what anyone in his right mind would consider safety because he understands that the only place safer than that boat is the arms of his Savior. So Jesus says in verse 29, he says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But, oh, that's the word, right? Everything changes on that one. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, it says, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, the word, the, the, the uh, Greek word there for boisterous is uh, a word that means strong. And uh, if you notice, I've, I've heard many people teach on this passage and most people say, you know, Peter was looking around at the size of the waves and the intensity of the storm. It doesn't say that. It actually says specifically what it was that Peter noticed. It wasn't the waves. It wasn't the clouds. It wasn't the lightning. It says, when Peter saw that the wind, the wind, the wind was strong, boisterous, he was afraid. Now, if you remember just a couple verses prior, it says the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves because the wind was against them. It was opposed to them as an adversary. The wind was contrary. Now, a handful of verses later, Peter is outside of the boat. He's walking out of the, he's stepped out of the familiar and he is actually doing the impossible. Peter is walking into this supernatural, in this supernatural dimension of intimacy and closeness with Jesus that nobody else has ever to this point experienced. And it says that Peter looked around and he saw that the wind was strong. And he was afraid. Now, the wind prior demonstrated itself to be opposed to them like an adversary. And in this moment, Peter looks around and he notices that the wind is strong. I think that Peter does in this moment what so many of us have done as well. He remembers the strength of his former adversary. And he, he builds a case in his own mind against God's grace for him. He remembers the strength of his former adversary. And he builds a case in his own mind against God's grace for him. Here's, here's what I mean. Today, God is inviting you to come and walk with him into the impossible, into the miraculous, into the supernatural. He's calling you out of a kingdom governed by uh, what's reasonable, what's universal, what's humanly accessible. He's calling you into uh, a, a dimension of intimacy with him and supernatural liberation in Christ. And, uh, and I'll bet that most of the people in this room are still right now running through a laundry list of reasons that you can't do that. You're, you're remembering the strength of your former adversary. You're saying, well, listen, I was, I was a drug addict six months ago. I don't know anything about this. I, you know, I don't know nearly as much about the Bible as... My, my pastors or leaders do, you know, I, I feel like, uh, man, I'm still struggling. You know, me and my wife just got in a, a fight last night. We were screaming at each other. I punched a wall. You know, there's, uh, what happens is that we bring our objections. We bring our 
failures. We bring the accusations that we've gathered about ourselves to the table and we, and we say, listen, I know that Jesus has called me to come, but he must have failed to consider just how strong my adversary really is. There's something opposed to me. There's something against me. There's something contrary to me that I just don't think I have the ability to overcome. I've got bad news and good news, friends. The bad news is you don't have the ability to overcome it. But the good news is greater is he who is in you. Greater is he who is in you than the adversary that has been set against you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than your past, your shame, your guilt, your failures. Greater is he who is in you than your reputation. Greater is he who is in you than the wind that is set against you. Friend, I'm telling you that the spirit of the living God is going to put a wind inside you that is stronger than the wind that is against you. And I specifically... Specifically, I believe the spirit of the living God is going to put a wind of truth inside of you that is stronger than the wind of accusation that has come against you. That this wind of accusation is constantly telling you you're not strong enough, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that the wind of the Holy Spirit is going to tell you that, that his grace is sufficient for you and his strength is made perfect in weakness. And you're going to say, and, and, and the wind of of, of accusation that has set itself against you, it's going to say, yeah, but you're not smart enough. And, you, and, and the wind of truth inside of you is going to say, yeah, but uh, he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And every bit of accusation, every bit of accusation, every bit of accusation that could ever be foolish enough to mount itself against you is going to have to contend with the wind of the person of the Holy Spirit that blows from inside of you that declares that he is enough. And if God is for you, what could ever possibly be against you? And so Peter, he looks around and he saw that the wind was boisterous it was strong and when he did so he was afraid beginning to sink he cried out saying lord save me this kills me man in verse 30 it says peter was afraid in verse 27 what did jesus say to him be of good cheer it is i do not be afraid it's three verses jesus says peter whatever you do do not be afraid three verses later he was afraid do you ever feel, can you relate to this? It's like that thing he told me not to do, I immediately did that thing, you know? <laughs> and this is, I, I, I want you to get it. This is not probably Peter's proudest moment, but uh, he's afraid. And, you know, I think we can all relate to that. He's not quite convinced He's, um, he's convinced that Jesus can do it for himself. He's not convinced Jesus can do it for him. Right? People are convinced of the power of, of God. They're not convinced of the power of God for them. Right? They know that God can heal the sick and raise the dead, just not for them. They know that God is able to, to set people free in a moment from addiction, from a lifetime of addiction or depression, from a lifetime of trauma and suffering, but not them. He can do it for everybody else, but not me. Peter's convinced that Jesus can calm storms, but he's not convinced that Jesus can help him. He's seen Jesus do the impossible over and over and over again, but when it comes to him, he's got more faith in the wind than he does his Savior. And so, uh, and so he's, he's afraid, which I think is, is natural. And beginning to sink, he cries out and he says, Lord, save me. And immediately, everybody say immediately. immediately. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now that, that phrase, oh, you of little faith, it's actually not the first time Jesus had used that phrase. He says in, uh, in Matthew chapter eight, just a few chapters prior to this, it says this, it says now, when he got 
when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly a great tempest arose. This is Matthew 8, um, starting in verse 23. Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. I love this about Jesus. He's unconcerned. Can I tell you, when it feels like your life is falling apart, his life is not. When it feels like your world is crashing down, his world is not. And this isn't a lack of compassion. This is called faith. Right? And, and so it says, it says the, the boat is being covered by the waves, but he was asleep. Then the disciples came to him and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. We're about to die. But he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, my, my good friend, a good friend of our ministry, Parker Thomaston, came and preached several years ago now uh, here at the Altar Fellowship and, and uh, taught on this passage and said something that has so radically changed the way that I view this passage. And he, he said this, he said, if these, he said, these guys were concerned that Jesus wasn't concerned enough. They were worried that Jesus wasn't worried enough, right? And so they, they came to him to wake him up and get him to do something. But if they would have been where they were supposed to be, instead of standing on the bow of their ship, watching the storm and the waves bear down on, on them, they would have been curled up in the hull, in the bottom asleep at rest with Christ. So much of our time and energy is given to peering over the edge of our boat, right? Looking at CNN and Fox News, watching the storm coming, right? We're afraid that the, the waves are getting bigger. Did you see that lightning storm? Oh, no. You know, there's a, a, a riot happening and have you seen gas prices, you know? And Oh, the president said or did this crazy thing. Did you hear about this new bill that he signed into to law? And what happens is that we're constantly leaning over the edge of our boat and watching the storm. But if we were where we were supposed to be, we'd be curled up in a place called rest in the arms of our Savior. We wouldn't ever see the storm if we were in the place we were called to be. We'd be at rest. We'd be in, in a place called peace, seated in peace with the, the, the Prince of Peace himself. But he wakes up and in his mercy, he calms the storm. He deals with the, with the dysfunction that they're, they're dealing with. And, and then he turns to them and he says this, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? So flash forward a short period of time in the lives of the same men. They find themselves in the same situation. Peter begins to walk into the impossible. He steps out of the boat. He steps out of the familiar and into the impossible, but he notices the wind and he begins to sink. Immediately, Jesus reaches down and, and uh, stretches out his hand and catches him. And, and then he says this to him, oh, you of little faith. He uses the same phrase that he used in Matthew chapter eight. He says, Peter, don't you remember? And we've been in this situation before. I can only imagine that that phrase was like a slap in the face for Peter. And he realized he'd been in this exact situation before. He'd been rebuked by Jesus. Jesus said, why are you afraid? Your faith is small. If you would trust me, this wouldn't be able to shake you. And then just a few chapters later, Jesus, Jesus says the same words to Peter again. Oh, you of little faith. Man, if your faith could just grow, if you could just learn to trust me, you would know that I will not leave you. That I will not leave you. Even the wind and the waves obey me. Did you forget already? Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He said. And now, as difficult as this must have been for Peter, it's a lesson learned, right? He's presumably he's wiser at the end of it. He's grown a little bit because of it. But I, I think what is for me one of the most significant portions of this passage is this. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Peter hadn't 
Peter had gotten himself into this situation. It was his faithlessness that caused him to sink. Peter deserved what was happening to him. He'd earned it. But he, he cries out. Starting, beginning to sink, he cries out and says, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Friends, during my now 15 years of ministry, I, I can't count the number of people I have met and ministered to that have continued to live in lack and suffering and hardship. They've continued to sink deeper and deeper. And the reason they have felt unworthy to call out is because they felt like they brought it on themselves. They think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna have to figure out this addiction and all the side effects that come with it. I'm just gonna have to live, I'm gonna have to live with AIDS because it's a consequence of the lifestyle that I chose to live. What happens is that we allow ourselves to continue to sink into the depths of despair because we feel like we brought it on ourselves. But friends, that is a fun, that demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. No matter how far you have run from him, he's only one call away. You may have turned your back and run 10,000 miles from Jesus the King, but I'm telling you today, he's still only one step away. He's still only one step away. Lord, save me. I'm sinking. I did it to myself. I'm sinking. It's my little faith that put me in this position. I'm, but I'm going to drown. Lord, save me. And without hesitation, Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, before I save you, do you promise to never do it again? He didn't say, well, repeat this prayer after, after me. You know, I'm going to have to see if you tithe. He, he didn't make Peter sign on the dotted line. And Peter said, Lord, save me. And immediately he found himself hand in hand with his redeemer and friend. You know, we spoke today, I, I shared today at men's prayer something that has just become for me, a, 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 I think of, formative revelation over these last couple months. Um, we were with our friend uh, Damon Thompson, who's a, really a, a part of our family. We love very much. Um, pastors at a church down in Mobile, Alabama called the Homestead. We were down with him the day that he was stepping into that position at that church. He said something that just shook me, man. He, he said, you know, we have this picture of, uh, of God as a judge in a powdered wig and a black robe holding a gavel, you know, ready to pound it on the table and pronounce a, a, an eternal fate for us. You know, you're condemned to an eternity in hell or you're rewarded with an eternity in heaven. Uh, we've got this sense of God as, as, as a judge, um, but, but judges didn't look like that when the Bible was written. That's a a modern westernized interpretation of the language of scripture. And honestly, that idea about the character, the nature of God was really introduced to us through uh, John Calvin and his teaching and, and ministry. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what is a biblical picture? Like, What does it look like if we're going to have a, a biblical understanding, if we're going to let God's word be the roadmap for our understanding of who God is, which I think, God's word should be that. Uh, and, uh, and Damon said, he said, well, if we want to find out, why don't we just start by looking at a book called Judges? Seems like a smart place to look, right? Here's the thing about the book of Judges, is that every one of these people that God called a judge for Israel, they weren't, they weren't there to condemn Israel. They were deliverers raised up from among the people to set them free from the captivity they had brought on themselves. It was Israel's disobedience that put them in captivity. And then God would raise up a person to deliver them from that captivity, to bring about a supernatural victory against an enemy that 
the Israelites could never have hoped to conquer on their own. And God called that person a judge. And so when God describes himself as a judge, we read in Psalm 50, it says God himself is your judge. The picture that we ought to have is not one of God sitting at his bench waiting to bang his gavel down on the table and pronounce uh, uh, your fate. But it's rather the God that goes before us with a sword in his hand to conquer the enemy that has come against us because of our own dysfunction. We put ourselves in the situation, but our judge has come to bring about justice for his sake and deliverance for his people. To conquer the enemies that have come against us because of our own sin, because of our own compromise, because of our own iniquity. Friend, I I came to tell you today this. No matter where you are, no matter where you are, you are only one step away. Peter, sinking into the depths that his faithlessness afforded him, cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Friends, I want to leave you with this today. God is not holding your iniquities against you. He's entrusted me with the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation. And so I've got to announce to you, I have the privilege to announce to you today that he is not imputing your trespasses against you. God is looking at you and he's saying, I, I want to put my righteousness on you. I want to put my purity on you. I want to put my holiness on you. I want to bring you into my family and I want to love you until you look like me. And it doesn't take a PhD in, in theology. It doesn't take a... It doesn't take a, a, a business card that says pastor or apostle on it. It doesn't take a six-month discipleship program. It takes a yes in this moment. It takes a yes in this moment, on this day, to say, Lord, save me. I'm sinking. And so would you you stand with me? I I just want to pray for you, and then we'll we'll dismiss. Listen, if you are in this place and you feel like, man, I'm sinking, maybe you've been falling back into sin that you know God has called you out of, maybe you're just overwhelmed and feeling like, I don't really see God in the midst of this storm. If you, if you feel like, man, I'm sinking, I want you to just raise both your hands up in the air. Come on, this is your, this is your opportunity. This is it. If, if, you're, if you can just say in, in your heart today, Lord, save me. This is, this is it. Listen, if you're around one of these people, I want you to lay hands on them. Come on, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that even, you know, Peter, uh, Peter's ultimate destination, he came out of the boat to to be with Jesus. And even his failure moved him closer to his destination. And so I declare over you that you are right on time today. That you are right on time today. I declare over you that you are right on time, that when your scroll was written, God had this date circled for you. I speak over you that, uh, that this sense or feeling that you've been drowning is not a, an indicator of failure on your part, but it is the grace of God driving you deeper into the revelation of your need for him. I speak over you right now that you are accepted that you are rescued and that immediately, immediately the hand of God, it will stretch into your situation to pull you up out and to draw you closer to himself. Thank you, Father, that you, that you're not a million light years away. That you're not on seated on some cosmic throne just thinking about us and hoping we figure it out on our own. But you are still saving souls today. You are still setting hearts free today. 
you are still delivering captives today. And you are still pulling drowning people up out of the water today. God, we thank you for the gospel of your grace. Thank you that you are better than our minds could possibly comprehend. And that in your goodness, you continue to draw us out of the depths that our own rebellion, our own confusion, and our own weakness have afforded us. Even when we have small faith, even when we have little faith, you answer our call and you pull us up. Thank you, God. You are the the lifter of our heads. You are our glory, our redeemer, our savior, our king, and our friend. Yahweh, we commit to you again today to say we will leave the boat if it means we get to walk with you. We'll leave the, the, the perceived safety and security that our own ability has, has built for us and, and, and commit ourselves again to say, God, you're not just our first priority. You are our only priority. We want to be with you where you are, Jesus. We want to walk with you where you are. Lord, we bless you. We honor you. We stand in awe of your love today. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you don't give up on us. And make us an example of that truth to a world that needs to see it. God, we bless you. We honor you. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, somebody shout amen. 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 Come on. Y'all bless you guys. Thank you so, so much for being here. Um, Don't forget to sign up uh, or to apply to be tribe leaders. Blessings to you. We'll see you back here Wednesday night. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.